You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Good morning. How's it going? Great. It's good to hear. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to take some time, and this is a good Sunday to do it because this, this particular message is very clear and it's very um, uh, short and brief from this particular passage. So I want to, again, just review things, set the table, make sure we know why Paul's writing and what's going on in the lives of the audience that, is, that initially got this letter. One thing to always understand about the Bible um, and I think we, we really err, and you can, people can really get off if they don't understand this, but the Bible's not written directly to you. The people will tell you it is, but it's not. The Bible is a conversation where somebody is writing directly to somebody else, and you and I are overhearing this conversation. So it really helps a lot to understand who's writing it, who they are writing to, why they wrote it, what their world was like. And then once we can kind of understand those dynamics, we can really understand how would God, if Paul were writing this letter, if the Holy Spirit inspires this letter and has these concerns, how are these concerns reflected in my world today? It's always good to understand who wrote it to whom and why they wrote it. And then we sort of kind of apply it to our lives through that that lens. So um, again, last week we found out uh, the book of Romans, it's the first book in the New Testament. This is just some, uh, some idle stuff here. Do you know why that is? It's the longest book of all the New Testament writings. It was very unusually long. And the, when the uh, guys were putting the New Testament together, they just put it together by the longest book first in Paul's writing. So Romans is the longest of Paul's book. That's why it's there first. It wasn't the first one he wrote. But, it was, um, uh, but it's the longest. It was written in 56 or 57 A.D. We almost know that for certain. It was written from uh, a time when he was in a city called Corinth. And he is writing to this church in Rome. What Paul's hoping to do is he has never been there. He's never visited Rome. He's or never been a part of the Roman church. Didn't know anybody uh, there personally. But he was hoping to uh, come there to them a little bit later. And he was hoping to kind of the Roman church would be sort of a base. And there would be a base of support for him financially. And there would be a base for him to, to begin launching in further west. He wanted to go to Spain after he uh, was in Rome. And he wanted to start taking the gospel westward in that direction. So it was very important. He established a relationship with this church, get to know their people. They get to know him. And then he could start launching out. So that's, it's an it's a interesting letter. And um, we found out that last week Paul wrote it. There was a guy uh, named uh, Tertius, who was the uh, scribe who wrote it, he's mentioned in verse 22 of chapter 16. And it was delivered to this church by a woman who was a deacon in a church in a city real near Corinth. And her name was Phoebe. And we know some things about Phoebe. Phoebe, one, is a Gentile name. It's a name, it's named after a Roman goddess. So we know that she wasn't Jewish. She was a Gentile who had converted to Christianity. 
Paul mentioned she was a deacon, so she had an official office in the local church. And she was also what Paul calls a benefactor, which means she would have been wealthy. She would have been very involved in supporting uh, different um, charities and different projects in her community, in her city. And she was very involved in supporting the church financially. And so she's delivering this letter, and she probably had a team of people with her. They may have had several copies of this letter. And this is the way the early church would work. I think it's really going to help us. We, we don't know, we literally don't know for sure how even large the city of Rome was population-wise in the first century. Some people think it was two to three million at, at the most. Some think it was as few as half a million. I think it was probably between a million to half a million people. There were probably... Uh, again, numbers will be disputed. Some people think there are as many as 50,000 Jews. Some think as few as 20,000. But there was a fairly significant Jewish population there. And there are probably several thousand Christians that were in the area. Some will say just a few hundred, but there was probably a few thousand Christians. And so Phoebe is getting this letter and she's taking it to them. And what she would have done to begin with, when she got there with her team, they would have gone and met with all the leaders of the different churches. And there are probably a, a couple dozen house churches that would have had anywhere from 20, 30 to up to maybe 100 or, or a few more than that uh, people in their house church. And these leaders got together and Phoebe had this letter and she would have read it and they would have asked questions. It would have been a lot more like a classroom than like a sermon we do on Sunday mornings. It would have been a lot more like a class. Uh, where you read something, a lecture talks for a little bit, and then you ask questions, and they answer the questions, and then someone over here may make a comment. And it would have been that sort of a learning environment initially for the leaders of the church. And they would have probably taken several days and gone through this letter over and over again, and they would have gotten it down. It would have taken them a long time to get through it because there's a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue. But eventually they would have felt great about what they were learning. They would have understood what Paul's intent was. They would have understood the theology. They would have understood the doctrine of it. And they would have understood why he wrote it. And they would have a, a, a time where they just, they got it. And that would, have been, that would have been going on initially. And then those leaders would have probably have, have written down, this, these letters would have been written down by them or they would have brought scribes that would have been involved in writing them down. And then they would take it to their individual congregations and they would have done the same thing. They would have read this letter over time. Uh, they would have dialogue back and forth, and they would learn this letter. And so that's how this letter was, was initially uh, disseminated and, and gotten out in the first century to, this, to the city of Rome. Now, the context of this letter is really, uh, I think, really interesting and really important um, uh, to, to get. It was written again uh, in 56, 57, and something had happened a few years earlier that was very impactful on the church in Rome. Uh, the, the Roman historian Suetonius tells us that there was a dispute amongst the Jews in Rome, <clears throat> and it was over Christus. They were arguing about Christ, whether he was the Messiah or where he, whether he wasn't, and it became a thing that was going on and affecting the broader culture. So the Emperor Claudius heard about this, heard about the uprisings over it, and said, okay, I'm just going to expel all the Jewish people. So literally every Jewish person in Rome, or predominantly most of them, were expelled from the city. They left their city. 
And the, the church that had begun in Rome would have had a very Jewish flavor. It would have been started by Jewish people that were converted probably on the day of Pentecost. Uh, they were the ones that knew the Bible. They were the ones that were the leaders. And that, those churches in Rome, those multiple house churches, would have had a very Jewish flavor to them. We know that early Christians that were Jewish maintained a lot of Torah observance. They maintained uh, doing festivals and the feast. They maintained kosher requirements. They maintained other sort of, uh, you know, Jewish-isms that were part of their faith before they became Christians. They just maintained those things over and over. And when they left for five years, the church was run and had to be overseen by Gentile converts. These are people that didn't have a, as strong a background in Judaism. They had learned the Old Testament from these people, and so they were learning. But as, they, as that church emerged, that Gentile-dominated church emerged in Rome, it was less Jewish, less Torah, less of a, of a, of a, of a Jewish flavor to it. And so the, the Jews came in and realized, wow, these, this church, one thing that was impressive is that it had grown. Those Gentile converts took that, the gospel, and they really, in five years, expanded, and it grew. And they were now the majority in the church, which hadn't been the case before. So it's kind of a situation where the student becomes the teacher, and there was a lot more of them. And they were not doing uh, the, the Jewish flavor that would, had been involved in, early, in their initial Christian uh, experience wasn't there anymore. They weren't observing kosher laws. They weren't observing the feast and festivals. They probably weren't doing a Jewish uh, laid out um, ceremony. And, and so it was very different for them. And they were, uh, they were just, it was awkward for a Jewish person. And they were almost kind of like, gosh, these guys are compromising. They're compromising. They're supposed to be doing this. They would kind of get this sort of slippery slope thing. You know, hey, you know, they start eating shrimp. They start eating pork. Next thing you know, they're going to be throwing wild parties around here. You know, you kind of have the slippery slope thing going on there. And they were, and so the, the Jewish people that were Christians were sort of tempted to use their expertise, their superior knowledge of Scripture, some of their extra moral uh, beliefs and practices to assert themselves over the Gentile converts. The Gentiles were going, we got this thing rocking. We, we, we're not dependent on, you know, you're going to tell us how to do it? We didn't have a thousand people in this building when you were here. Now we have really got it rolling. And, and, and so they had their side too. So you can see the conflict here. Jews were the minority. Jews were uh, less powerful. They felt, uh, uh, you know, ostracized by this edict that had just come out from Claudius. And so there's a lot of issues going on in the culture that are really intensified in the church, in that particular church in Rome. So Paul is, and this is the most important city in the world, so this church has got to get its stuff together. So Paul's writing to them. This is one reason he writes such a long, long, long letter, relatively speaking. And what he does in this really, really long letter, the first four chapters, he details what it means. Extremely detailed. 
what it means that you and I are justified by faith. What does it mean that our sins are forgiven? He describes the whole detail of it. He describes how forgiven they are. He describes the the importance of grace. And he goes through that very thoroughly. Then in chapter 5 through chapter 8, he introduces a theological concept that's in all his letters, but he details it and, and elucidates it in a way he doesn't in any other letter. And he talks about this, this idea of being in Christ. In Christ. And what he basically teaches there is the human family all were in Adam. To be human is to be in Adam. If you're part of the human race, you came from, you're a descendant of Adam, you were in Adam in that sense. And so he, he, he establishes that and he says, because we're in Adam, we're sinners, we inherited sinful nature, we have all these issues. But then he says that there are, is a race of humanity that is a new race. It is a different race. It is a distinct race. And this race is not characterized by ethnicity or skin color. This race is characterized by a miracle that has happened within them. They are now in Christ. And the nature of Adam that is sin-loving and defeated and dark has been transformed by the presence of Christ. And this new race, the in Christ race, is what we're a part of. So he talks about being forgiven. He talks about being in Christ. Then in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about the, the purposes of God that began with the Jewish people and have now extended to the Gentiles. And he talks about that dynamic. So he, he talks about three powerful things. Being forgiven, being recreated, being in Christ. And then he talks about God's purposes and plans uh, in, in a macro sense for history. And then he comes into chapter 12 through 16, and he really gets down into the nuts and bolts of walking out Christianity for these guys. And the first thing he said last week, he talked about, in two verses, he said a lot, but he talked about ultimately what he ended with is this is how you fulfill God's will. He said, if you do these things, you will approve the will of God, and you'll find out it is good, acceptable, and perfect. How many of you want to do the will of God? I wonder what God's will is. And a lot of times when we think about that, I know we work with a lot of college students, a lot of you wonderful college students, you think of the will of God, you think of what I should major in, where I should work, you know, where, what city should I live in, whom my roommate, you think of these will of God things. You know, for, for families, we think about is it time to have kids? Is it time to build a family? Should I buy a house or not? You, know, you, you have all these things, and we always are seeking what is God's will. And we, we understand God's will as a destination. Paul doesn't describe God's will as a destination. He describes it as a quality, good, acceptable, perfect. And he does not focus on outcome. Sometimes we really make a mistake as Christians Pursuing God's will because we focus on outcomes. Paul focuses a lot on process. You know, if, if I am focused on losing 20 pounds, and I imagine what it would be like to be 20 pounds lighter, I look at pictures of 
people that are my age that are 20 pounds lighter and look good and look healthy and how fabulous that might seem to be. I, I can think of how nice it'd be to be lighter. I can, I can think about all I want about the outcome. I, I want to buy a house and I think, oh, I just want this house and I want it to have this in it and that in it and that in it. But if, if you don't commit to the process of getting there, if you don't commit to the process of being healthy, if you don't commit to the process of buying a house, it's, it's sort of a vain thing. And Paul's saying, listen, don't be obsessed about the specifics of God's will. Be obsessed about the process. And here's what he describes as the process in verse 1 of chapter 12. This is how he gets into the nuts and bolts of Christianity. Number one, he said, make your life worship. Make the entirety of your life worship. Make your body a living sacrifice. Make everything about you about Christ. Everything about you about Christ. You want to fulfill God's will? Make everything about you about Christ. Make your relationships, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your marriage, your parenting, your work, the way you do your job, the way you pursue your education, the way you, you know, coach your kids' teams, make everything you do about Christ, number one. And the number two thing he says is don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by a renewed mind. It means commit to the process of learning what you believe and letting it own you and possess you and shape you. Let what, what the doctrines of grace and faith the commandment to love, what Christ did on the cross, what he's like. Let those things, those things we learn as we read the Bible, let them transform us, let them own us, let them possess us. And if those two things are happening, you're making your whole of your life worship, and you are renewing your mind rather than going along with the world, you know what you're going to do? You're going to land in God's will, whatever it may be. So that's his, that's his lead thing there. This is how you experience God's will. And then he comes into this verse here. Verse 3. Let's read this, verse 3 through 8. <clears throat> very, very uh, singular idea here. Verse 3, he says, For by the do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. For just as, just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, what Paul is saying here. And I want to kind of unpack how he's saying it, but basically is this. First, he has said as an individual Christian wanting to fulfill the will of God, you need to have an attitude, Christ in everything, and keep your mind renewed. But then he says this, you're not just an individual Christian. 
Something to discover about Christianity, it is a team sport. It is to be lived out in the context of a team, in the context of a family, in the context of a church, a local, real church body, in one in which where you are vital and it is vital to you. You are vital to it and it is vital to you. And Paul uses a, a, a very interesting word there that, that, is, you know, that, that has a different meaning uh, than what we sometimes think. And it's the word grace. He talks in verse 3, he says, you know what, there's a certain grace on my life. And then in verse 6, he talks about how every one of us has a particular grace on our life. Now, when I think of grace, I think of salvation by grace. That's what we read about in the Bible. So what does he mean when he says, there's a grace on your life, there's a grace on my life? And it simply means, the, the word grace means certainly, it just means a gift. It just means there is a way you have been gifted, there's a way you have been bent, there's a way you've been shaped by God, God intended to shape you a certain way that is different and that is important and that is specific. You each have a unique, different shape. And you have a unique, different role that's very different and very unique. The context of your life is different. The giftings, the natural talents that reside within you are very different. Everybody's different. And that's, that's God's work. God's intention is for everybody to have a different grace, have a different bent, have a different proclivity, a different expertise, different skills and talents that he's invested in them. Every one of us. Then he says the next thing. He says, although that's the truth, I want to warn you to do this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And what he literally says there is don't be high-minded. Don't be high-minded. Don't think more highly than you ought, but have sober judgment. Be sober. Be realistic. Now, what does he mean there? Why is he saying that? Well, here's something that can happen in every one of our lives. It happens in my life. It happens probably in your life. We can all think the thing that matters most to us is the most important thing there is. We can do that. I like to teach the Bible. I have worked real hard to learn the Bible. When I was a new Christian, very new, uh, when I was a teenager, my senior, I used to love reading the Bible. I, I literally would spend an hour or two some days just reading the Bible. I would get these concordances out, and I would look up Greek words, and I was just, I would just, and I have notebook and notebook of me just writing Bible verses down, taking notes. I just love the Bible. I still do. I love reading the Bible. If I, if, I can, if, I can just, if I can spend a day just reading the Bible, not having to get a sermon ready, I just love it. And if you ask me, I think the most important thing that is lacking in modern Christianity, you know what it is? It's Bible literacy. When I hear somebody talk about, oh, you know, Christians today don't know. I go, oh, yes, I just get so fired up. I'm like, they don't know the Bible well enough. We need to teach the Bible better. Because that's my thing. And it is important. And you do need to learn the Bible. But it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing. If you came to church this Sunday and all you heard was 
me do a Bible lecture for an hour. We had no worship. We had, wasn't organized. There was no uh, communion involved. There was no children's ministry. There was no, we would have a much less of an experience here. Am I right? The, the, and, 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 and so Paul's saying, look, don't, don't think. If, if somebody may like worship the most, that may be their thing. But it's not the only thing. You may like evangelism. That may be your, let's go reach the lost. It isn't the only thing. Somebody can say, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm concerned about the unborn. That's very important. But it's not the only important thing. Somebody can say they're concerned about the poor. And I agree with that. But it's not the only thing. And what Paul is saying here to these guys is, hey, you've got a certain bend about you. You have a certain expertise even about you that, that goes together. You're going you're gonna to like doing things you're, you're gifted to do. You're going to believe in things you're gifted to do. But don't get so high-minded that you really think you're more important than everything else or what you're into or what matters to you is more important than everything else. He says, have sound judgment. And he, and he uses this word. He says, because God has distributed, he's apportioned you know, pieces among everybody. Just like a jigsaw puzzle. Anybody ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? You know what would be an awful thing? I'm not a jigsaw puzzle guy, but you put together a jigsaw puzzle and you have about pieces just missing. What if you just didn't have all the pieces there? I mean, you kind of get it'd be fine. But every piece is important. What if every piece of the jigsaw puzzle was exactly the same? You know what you don't have? You don't have a big picture. You don't have a completed product. And here's what Paul's saying here to these guys. Hey, don't, don't think more highly of yourself than you are. Think. Don't cluster. One of the most awful things churches do before they die is cluster. It's in cluster and sameness. As a church grows, it gets more and more diverse. It gets generationally, it gets racially, it gets economically and socioeconomically. It gets more diverse, more diverse. And churches are not alive despite their diversity. Like a body, it is alive because of its diversity. It's what makes it alive. It's what makes it thrive. It makes it thrive that, that, that you, you have some guys who can preach sermons. It makes it thrive also that you have people who can sing and who can complement that with worship and singing. It makes it thrive that you have people who, can, who are building and, and discipling and raising up kids while the church service is going on. It's, it makes it thriving that there are people that are taking the youth and are able to help them grow to make our individual families stronger and more Christ-centered. It, it, it thrives that people lead small group Bible studies. It thrives when older Christians take an interest in discipling younger Christians and making sure they're going to make it uh, down the path as they, as they walk with the Lord. It it makes it thrive when young people in our church and they bring energy and life and enthusiasm. It is everything together that makes a church alive and thrive, just like in our bodies. You take one part out, it's less of a body. You can take some parts out and it won't work. It's everything together. It's everything together. And this is what Paul is, is 
teaching these guys that are, that are again, they're, they're learning how to live with each other, and they're, they're from different backgrounds. He's saying, listen, it is everything together. There is credible value in what is different about that person and, and then, than from you. Learn to live together. Learn to value difference. Learn, you know, hey, a, 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 the engine of a car loves the wheels, could you imagine a car with, that has an engine? If somebody came up to you and said, what would you rather have in your car? A car with no engine or a car with no wheels? What would you, what would you choose? A car with no tires or no engine? Which Don't think about that one too long because it's, it's, it doesn't matter. Neither is good. But you can't, it's not a car without them. In a, in a church, as God wants it, is not a church if... If, if, there's not, if there's not each different part available, present, functioning, if, if different proclivities and different interests and different ministry passions and different giftings aren't united throughout the whole church body, it's lacking something. And this is what Paul's telling them, man. There's a grace given. And then he goes up and he closes with this one little thing here. He talks about simply this, um, whatever your gifting is, Man, do it with all you got. He talks about if, you're, if your gift's prophecy, prophesy with faith, man. Just go for it. If your gift is teaching, then teach. Man, be good at it. If you're there to encourage people, encourage. If you're there to show mercy to people, be happy and joyful and do it. If you're giving is your thing, give a lot of money away. Be a great giver. If it's leadership, lead well. Whatever your gifting is, do it real good. Whatever is your proclivity, whatever your talent is, whatever your gifting is, as it relates to serving in the church, he says, man, do it really well. And I would say this, as we, here's a church, if you're leading, if you're a part of worship team, do it great. If you're part of the children's ministry, do it extraordinarily well. If you're greeting, be the happiest greeter, friendliest greeter, the greetingest greeter ever seen. Whatever you're doing in the church, if you're leading a Bible study, do it great every week. If you're involved in a prayer meeting, bring it when you come to the prayer meeting. Whatever you're doing, Paul says, do it with all you have. Because see, here's what you do individually, he says. Make your life worship. Renew your mind. But he says something else that's really important. It's not just an individual sport. It's a team sport. So get connected. Get connected. Get in real relationships. Don't be separate. You're, you're a priceless piece of the puzzle. Find your place. Lock in. And make the picture, the bigger picture, all that more beautiful. That's what God's calling us to do. Real simple. Real simple. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, powerful book and this time that we're in. We pray that you would uh, make its words alive to us. As it talks about us being gifted and being each having a proclivity and each having a, a kind of a bent toward a, in a way of serving you. 
We have a bent in our purposes and our passions and our desires. Father, I pray that you would uh, just keep our, our mind level. We wouldn't think more highly than we ought to think. We'd be sober-minded. We'd realize we're just a part of a bigger whole. Give us grace to do the things you've called us to do in the places you called us to do it with great passion, with great energy, and to employ our gifts within the context of a church for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in His purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.